Welcome to Make Me Your Voice with Pastor David Bartowell. These messages are intended to deepen your faith and trust in a living God who speaks to us with hope and reason. Today's message comes to us from the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. Today, many people don't know, is Flag Day, and it made me think about how important being a citizen of the United States is. It was November 17th, 1987, when I became a naturalized citizen of the United States. I was born outside of the United States. And on that day, I made an oath publicly, and I'm going to just read a portion of the oath that I made. I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce and abjure all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, state, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been a subject or citizen, that I will support and defend the Constitution, the law of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I have to be honest with you, that was one of the best days of my life. But an even better day was in 1991 when I became a citizen of heaven and I made an oath privately to place my faith in Jesus Christ and an oath publicly to follow him through in baptism, and I made an oath to renounce all other allegiances. I made an oath to make Jesus Christ and his kingdom above all things. If you're a believer, you relate to that. Sadly, many people who claim to be believers and claim to be Christ followers don't follow him, are no longer living up to their oath. They became citizens of heaven, but they're devoted to this world. They became citizens of heaven, but they didn't renounce their allegiance to the other kingdom. They decided to follow Jesus only when it's appropriate, only when it's comfortable, only when I feel like it. Following Jesus became secondary to all other oaths. There's an inherent problem with that type of worldview. Because Jesus said in Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to come after me or behind me, he must deny himself or say no to himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Those are the words of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You can't follow Christ and be devoted to any other kingdom. You can't follow Christ and have allegiances above him. You can't follow Christ and it be about you. You can't follow Christ and have any other kingdom above him, including the kingdom of you. You know what's the kingdom? It's called the kingdom of you or the kingdom of me. It becomes all about me instead of all about him. Because there's no gray area here to have allegiance to other kingdoms. In order to be a Christ follower, I must die. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What does that mean to die to yourself, to deny yourself? Today we're going to look at Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and find out what it really means to die to yourself. Just a little background around Stephen. He was a Hellenistic Jew. He was part Greek. His name is Greek. He probably came to faith during Pentecost. We don't know. 
He's described by the apostles as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. He was chosen by the apostles as the first to be assigned to wait on tables. Diakonos, that's that word, and we get the word deacon. It literally means wait on tables. He was also a man full of grace and power, whom God used to perform great wonders and signs among the people. Now, we don't know much else about Stephen other than he is the proto-martyr, the first of the kind, the first Christian martyr. So he's the prototype. And we can learn from Stephen some important truths about what it means to be a follower of Christ and to say no to ourselves. So what does this new death entail? The new death involves first crucifixion. There's a crucifixion that happens. Paul wrote it this way in Galatians 2.20. Read it with me. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. That's an oath. Notice, like Stephen, Paul's life was dramatically changed by Jesus Christ. Before Paul met Christ, he was not living for God. He thought he was. He was living for the law. And he was proud of his religion. And he was proud of his piety. He thought he was living for God, but he was really living for himself and his own glory. So for Paul to say, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me, is a dramatic change that happens to all people who decide to follow Christ. It can never be about you anymore. To be crucified with Christ means that I have taken on his death, which means I am now alive in Christ, which means that I've taken on his resurrection. But I can't rise until I die. Jesus said, if you humble yourself, you will be exalted. Jesus is the perfect example, the prototype of a perfect, obedient life unto God. He denied himself in his glory by leaving heaven and humbling himself and taking on human flesh. He denied himself in his humanity by submitting to the will of his Father in heaven perfectly. Everybody else fails. Nobody, including Paul, could do and live how Jesus lived. That's why we need Jesus. So when I come to faith in Christ, it means that I become crucified with him. I take on his death. I'm laid in a tomb And like Jesus, I don't stay there. I rise with him and actually am seated with him in heaven currently. Even though my body's here, it's a done deal. When I leave this earth and I leave this body behind, I'm with Jesus in heaven. But that can't happen until you're dead. So that means that I die to myself, I place my faith in Jesus Christ, 
and he begins to live through me. Now here's the problem. There's a lot of Christians who are dead theologically, but they're not dead yet in following Christ. There's a movie, a Monty Python movie, called The Holy Grail. I don't know if you remember it. But there's a scene. The officials come into the city, and they're chanting, Bring out your dead! Bring out your dead! And they're all piling dead people onto the cart. They're dragging this guy out. Bring out your dead! And the guy they're dragging out says, But I'm not dead yet. What do you mean you're not dead yet? Put him on the cart. I'm not dead yet. And finally, they put him on there and knock him in the head and he dies. There's a lot of Christians who are walking around like that guy. I'm not dead yet. You've taken on the crucifixion, but you're still trying to live your own life. That's a huge problem. What it does is not only affects your life, it affects the witness of Christ through you. Because until you're ready to die to yourself, Christ cannot live through you the way he wants. Until you're ready to say no to yourself and say yes to Christ, until you're ready to deny and denounce and renounce all your allegiances to anything that is above him, you won't be dead yet. Yeah, you'll be dead in the sense that you're crucified theologically and spiritually, but you're the walking dead kind that wants to walk ahead of Christ instead of behind him. That's not how Stephen lived. In fact, Stephen's life was so changed that he literally died for Christ. And until we get to that point, we can't ever say we're really following him. Next, the new death involves submission. I must submit to the authority of Christ. But not only to the authority of Christ, the authority of Christ's church. Look at this verse, Acts 6-5. They chose Stephen, who's they? The church leaders, the apostles. Man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So what happened there is the apostles chose Stephen. He submitted to the authority of Christ by submitting to the authority of his church. I want you to think about this because this new death involves three aspects of submission. First, I must submit to Jesus as Lord. That's number one. So I have to submit to him as Lord. Secondly, I have to submit to his word as authority. So Jesus is Lord, his word as authority. And number three, I must submit to his church as family. His church as family. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 6. I'm going to start reading in verse 1. It says here, Now at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews. So isn't that odd? There was a complaint in the church. And it was from the Hellenistic Jews, which means the Jews that were of Greek origin, against the native Jews, the native Hebrews, 
because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of the food. So there was a conflict about how the food was being distributed in the church, and they complained. So in verse 2, the 12, the apostles summoned the congregation and the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to diakonos, serve tables. Therefore, brothers, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task so that we can devote ourselves to what God has called us to do, pray, and to the ministry of the word. So you see what's going on here? The apostles are wise. They're saying, hey, we can't handle all these complaints. Remember, by this time, there's probably like 5,000 at least in the church. They're getting complaints in this. I mean, how can you do what God's called you to do when you're trying to like handle everyone's complaints? So they said, no, let's get other people involved. And so in verse 5, the statement was approved by the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip and Prochorus, and Nicanor and Timon and Parmenas and Nicholas. And Nicholas was a proselyte, so he was a Gentile convert from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them as a symbol of God's anointing. The word of God went on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests, so these Levitical priests, were becoming obedient to the faith. So a lot of priests were coming to Christ. So what do we see here? We see Stephen chosen by the apostles to wait on tables. But yet Stephen, we know that he had a lot of supernatural things that God was doing through him. So why didn't he say, hey, why can't I be an apostle? I don't want to wait on tables. I want to go out and preach the word. I want to go out and do miracles. You know, I want to go out and get attention. That's not what he did. He said, I'll do anything you want me to do. I live for Christ. So he submitted to Christ by submitting to the authority of the church. Out of those three aspects of submission, Jesus is Lord, his word is authority, his church is family, which is the most difficult for you? Is it submitting to Jesus as Lord? Is it submitting to his word as the authority in your life? Or is it submitting to the church as a family? Because here's the thing, a family has an inherent authority structure. There's a mom, there's a dad, and there's kids. Okay, and if you're uh, you know, a mom and a dad, and you have three kids, you're automatically outnumbered. So if there's no authority, there's chaos. So look what 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2 says. Do not sharply rebuke an older man, but rather appeal to him as a father, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters in all purity. So Paul is writing to Timothy about how the church should be structured authority-wise. And so God appoints leaders, he appoints pastors and elders to lead his family in the local church. And when there's a breakdown in the family, you see what happens. It's in our society. There's a lack of respect for authority. Nobody's wanting to submit to the authority that God has, though that's the world. That can't happen in the church. 
whenever there's confusion and chaos, that's not God. When you see confusion and chaos going on, that's the devil. God is a God of order and peace. When there's order and peace, then God is an authority. Whether that be in your life, whether that be in your thoughts, whether that be in your actions, whether that be in your behavior with other people, that's how God set it up. In fact, he gives us a perfect example. Look at the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all equally God, all equally divine, all equally worthy of praise, but yet each one submitted to the other for the purpose of mission. Jesus, the Son, submitted to the Father for the purpose of his mission to come to earth and save us. The Holy Spirit submitted to the Son to be a testimony of Jesus and his word and to convict the world of sin, so he points to Christ. That's how it functions with order. And God has set it up in relationships that way as believers in the church. So that's a part of the new death that we have experienced in Christ is to submit to his authority. Next, the new death involves proclamation. We need to proclaim Jesus to the world. So apparently, Stephen ticked off some of the religious leaders, the religious people, because of his witness. So what did they do? They concoct up a way to try and kill him, just like they did with Jesus. So Stephen preaches this powerful sermon with courage and boldness. And he proclaimed the gospel of grace to the law-loving religious people because nothing ticks off religious people more than grace. Go back to Acts chapter 6, and let's pick up in verse 8. This is right after they appoint Stephen to wait on tables. It says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people, but some men from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen. What's that referring to is the Greek-speaking synagogue, so that makes sense. Stephen spoke Greek, so he would speak Greek in this particular synagogue, and the freedmen is probably people who were freed from slavery. So including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians and some from Elisha and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. So that's a big issue there. They couldn't handle what he was saying. But here's the great thing. They were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. So they secretly concocted up a way to kill him by saying that he was speaking blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So what they do is they pull out the Moses and the God card. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged Stephen away and brought him before the council. And then they put forward false witnesses, so they're breaking the law, who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene Jesus will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And then verse 15, and fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face turn into like the face of an angel. Remember when Moses came down off 
the Ten Commandments. His face shined with the glory of God. Apparently, that's what's happening here with Stephen. And at this point, put yourself in Stephen's sandals and wonder to yourself, if you're in this predicament, what would you do? I mean, Stephen could have just gone home. He could have saved his life, but Stephen had already renounced his life. See, that's the key. That's the point. You're never going to live for Christ, and you're never going to proclaim him as Lord in the face of death if you haven't already died inside. When you think about a soldier, they go with the intention they're not coming back. See, if you're not dead yet, yes, you're dead theologically, but if you're not dead yet to yourself, you're not going to be like Stephen. You're not going to stand up in the face of death, even though his face is shining like an angel because he's about to be taken up to heaven. And what does Stephen do? He doesn't go home. He doesn't shrink in fear. You know what he does? He reads them the riot act. And he preaches this incredible sermon that's like really long. I'm not going to go through the whole thing. But he starts off with Abraham and recites the entire history of the nation of Israel and how Israel had turned their backs and hearts away from God to idols. And guess what one of the idols was? The temple, the holy place. See, they had made what was intended to be a place of worship a thing of worship. And in fact, it would only be a few decades after Stephen's death that the prophecy of Jesus would come true when he turned to his apostles when he was still living on this earth, and they were all impressed with the temple and the gold. It was incredible. He says, do you see all those great things you're looking at? Those things you adorn? Those things you worship? He said, truly I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. And you know what happened in 70 AD? Titus and his Roman army came in and took Jerusalem and they burnt down and destroyed the temple so that nothing was left. Because here's the thing. In order to die and live for Christ, all other holy places have to be destroyed. So Stephen, filled with the Spirit of God, reminded them of their idolatry and their sin and their guilt of actually killing their Messiah because Stephen's allegiance was to no other kingdom but the kingdom of Christ. There was no other holy place because Jesus was his holy place. And he stood up as Jesus' witness and stood up for Jesus' word and boldly rebuked them by the word of God. That's what the new death brings. When you want to die to yourself, you will stand up and proclaim the word of God boldly and not caring what happens. And then the new death involves provocation. Now, Stephen didn't provoke them. Can I get an amen about something here? God's word is offensive. If it wasn't offensive, then it wouldn't work. It wouldn't convict. It wouldn't tick people off. 
See, the preaching of the word should rattle the nerves of people who want to remain comfortable in their sin and unbelief. Stephen was just a messenger, but they were ticked at him. Same way they were ticked at all the other prophets. If you look at the history of Israel, they were always rebelling and killing their prophets. I think of the saying, don't shoot me, I'm just a messenger. I also think of the Elton John album, don't shoot me, I'm just a piano player. Because the word of God provokes for the purpose of tuning your life, tuning the piano. Because if the piano's out of tune, it sounds horrible. And it's not a good witness. God's word goes deep into the heart and convicts and also encourages us. So Stephen's sermon was an indictment of their sin. I'm going to jump to the very end of the sermon. You can read it. It's in uh, chapter 7. But I'm going to go all the way to verse 51. And this is the end of his sermon. So he presents all the evidence that Israel had committed idolatry. And in verse 51, he says, You guys are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears, and you're always resisting the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to tick someone off, tell religious people that. And he goes on, he says, you're doing just as your fathers did. Now, what are we learning here? He's speaking to people who are claiming to be God followers, but they're not Christ followers. You're doing exactly what your relatives, your ancestors did. Which one of the prophets did you not kill or persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the laws ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Wow, that's going to tick people off, especially religious, law-abiding people that think they're living for the law and think they're holy in themselves and think they're pious in themselves and they're righteous in themselves. And then they judge everyone else. That's what self-righteousness does, by the way. That's why you preach a gospel of grace. But at this point, Stephen is just preaching the word, preaching the word, and that in itself provokes a response that should be repentance, but not in this case. But here's the thing that's important. Stephen, we know, was operating under the power and grace of God's Spirit. It says that. So therefore, it wasn't Stephen speaking. Who was speaking? God. The Holy Spirit was speaking. And if you have a problem with what the Holy Spirit is saying through the Word, Jesus Christ, take it up with Him. I remember people saying to me, not now, thank you that we all want to not be like those religious people. We want to learn and to grow and to be convicted and to be encouraged because we know that God's Word heals us. But there were times where people would say, Pastor, uh, you need to turn down your sermons. Uh, They're too convicting. And one time, when I first came out with my first CD, and there was a record company, this is 1992 or 3, that was very, it was a major record company in Nashville. And they said to me, we don't know how to market you because your music is too inspirational. I was like, wow, isn't that a good thing? I don't know. But here's the thing. The Holy Spirit is convicting you. 
Not me. I don't have the power to do that. But like I said, God's word is like a two-edged sword. It pierces the deepest parts. I had people say, Pastor, how do you know what's going on in my life? You've been spying on me? It's as if you know exactly what I'm thinking. It's not me. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. And by the way, the entire purpose of being convicted by the word, at least for believers, is not condemnation. It's edification. It's to build up the church. But you have to stop resisting the Holy Spirit. So Stephen's sermon convicted these heathens, but now Stephen was going to experience the conviction of the law and the condemnation of the law, which is death by stoning. So as we go on here, he just ticked them off totally by saying, you don't keep the law. Verse 54 of chapter 7. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick, are furious, and they began gnashing their teeth. So there's a violent rage happening. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Stephen said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed at him with one intent. And they drove him out of the city and they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet because they wanted their arms clear. So they took off their robes and guess who they laid their robes next to? A young man named Saul. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. That's a powerful witness. And we get to see it, not live happening, but we see it. And we understand it because if you're someone who says no to yourself, you know that at any moment God's going to say, say yes to me and that could involve exactly what happened here. The word witness in Greek is marturo, which is where we get the word martyr. And you can't be a martyr if you're not dead yet. Your testimony will be tainted. So Stephen fell asleep. That's what Christians, believers, we don't die. Fall asleep. You know what happened? He woke up in heaven with Jesus, the person he just defended. And remember when Jesus said, if anyone's ashamed of me and my word, I'll be ashamed of them. That wasn't the case with Stephen. Stephen was, had renounced all other kingdoms. But there's something else that is awesome about what just happened. Let's continue in Acts 8. It says here, Saul. Now, who's that? That's going to be Paul. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the region. And some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. So what happened here? God used Stephen's death to eventually bring Paul who was Saul, into God's kingdom. In fact, Acts 22, Paul is sharing his testimony after he's a believer, before the Roman officials, 
He says this, And when the blood of your martyr Stephen, he's talking to the people that were there, was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. That's amazing. Saul, who was living for the law, he wasn't living for God, who eventually wrote, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me and through me. I live by faith. And that death of Stephen, I'm sure, got Paul's attention. It ticked him off, is what it did. He went out trying to get every Christian in prison and eventually dead. Because provocation can lead to salvation. Stephen didn't know that then, but he knows it now. And Paul's in heaven partly because of Stephen's testimony. We're going to talk about Paul next week, a new convert. Paul had to die to himself, and he literally was left in the dirt so that he could rise. So what to expect when this is over? What should we expect? Well, we should expect a new death. It's not really a new death, because like I said, if you're in Christ, you've already died, but the new death means that you are constantly aware that it's say no to me, say yes to Christ. That job offer, say no to me, say yes to Christ. That opportunity, say no to me, say yes to Christ. Whatever it is, the more you can learn to say no to yourself, then you actually experience the death, but life. And that's the next thing, what to expect, a new life. If you're willing to die to yourself and say no to yourself like Stephen, then you will live. When you renounce your allegiance to all other kingdoms, even the kingdom of me, the kingdom of you, you will begin to experience the life that God has intended for you. You will finally experience the freedom that Christ talks about because you'll no longer have to defend yourself. You no longer have to fear what people think. You'll finally live the life God has given you because you've died to yourself and now you're alive in Christ. You'll see things differently. You'll see what's happening in the world as opportunities to talk about Jesus and not about yourself or your opinions. And then finally, what to expect, a new purpose. Because here's the thing. Your new life will lead to your new ordained purpose. You can't live out your purpose if you've not been crucified with Christ. You can't live out your purpose if you've not risen with Christ. And you can't live out your purpose if you haven't renounced your allegiance to this world and to everything else, and you've placed Christ at the top, seated on the throne, as Stephen said, I see Jesus seated in the right hand of the Father. That's where you should see him. He's the Lord of your life. And once you have finally come to that realization, and then you're no longer not dead yet, you're dead, you will experience everything that God has for you. And yes, it could be like Stephen. But what a better way to go out. You'll truly be a martyr. See, Stephen lived and fell asleep, woke up in heaven, and he did exactly what God wanted him to do while he was here. This verse really speaks to me, Acts 13, 36. I don't know if I'm worthy of this, but maybe one day, if you think you could put it on my tombstone. It says, For David, 
after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. Wouldn't that be like the best tombstone? Put your name in there. For whoever, your name. After he or she had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep and woke up with Christ. What a better way to go. Dying to yourself means living and living with Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can live for Christ. Like Paul said, to die is gain, to live is Christ. We have to die. Now, we've been theologically dead if we're believers in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we have been crucified with him, but some of us are not dead yet. And I pray that if it's any of us today, that we would say no to ourselves now. And that doesn't mean not care about ourselves or not want to do good things and not want to live. That's not the point. But the point is to renounce all other allegiances and putting my foremost allegiance to Christ. And then everything else falls into place. That's what Jesus said. Now, if you're not a believer, if you're checking it out and you want to become a believer, then you pray, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. I ask you to be the Lord and the Savior of my life. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins so I don't have to. Thank you for rising from the dead so that I can rise with you in faith. Lord, I just thank you that you love your church and you love Stephen, your martyr. And we can learn a lot from him, Lord, but we can learn mostly from Jesus who denied himself all the way and humbled himself to death so that we can live. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pastor David Bartowell's message reminds us that God speaks to us with hope and reason so that we can be His voice in this world. Please join us again for Make Me Your Voice, a ministry of the Gate Christian Bible Church in Orange County, California. We would love to have you join us for a Sunday service. For more information or to find our location, please visit thegatecbc.com. Make me your voice.